This is the Blind Entrepreneur Podcast, where we help entrepreneurs and business professionals execute their vision by guiding them to profitability. Today, we have the great Mark Suster. Mark Suster is an entrepreneur, angel investor, and investment partner at Upfront Ventures. He is most notably known for his amazing, amazing website and blog, Both Sides of the Table. You can check it out at bothsidesofthetable.com. I can say in full transparency and confidence that his blog was one of the things that I constantly read on a routine basis to get his insights on deal flow, um, finding a way to get investors, talk to investors, and just how to run a better business. So uh, it is an absolute honor to have him on the show, uh, but more specifically uh, that he is also a mentor for Techstars. He is a two-time entrepreneur selling his first company, Coral, to Salesforce and his second company, uh, Build Online, to a uh, that was acquired by Sword Group. He is accomplished. He is great. He is a, a very respectable individual in the business community. But I want to highlight a particular story about the type of man that Mark is. And we go into this story in the podcast, but... I made a bet with him and I made a bet with him online and his family grew up in the uh, Philadelphia region like I have and I made a bet with him and I said hey if the Eagles win the Super Bowl will you join me on my podcast and he said yes and then the Eagles won and he was a man of his word and he jumped on the show and he gave me 45 minutes of his time and I couldn't be more grateful and I hope that you guys listen to the show and learn a thing or two just as much as I did. I think I learned something within the first five minutes. So uh, enjoy today's episode. Have fun. And again, Mark, thank you so much for being on the show. Let's go. Hey, Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. We're going to get into the story as to why you're here in the first place, because it was a very great, uh, great story, but we'll wait until later. Before we get into the heavy hitting questions about entrepreneurship, business, and everything else in between, we have to talk about the important stuff, and that is food. Yes. So imagine you just had the absolute best day of your life. Yeah. Where are you going to eat? And what are you going to order to make your day complete? Man, if I, you know, I have such a hard time limiting it. So I'm going to take the easy out and give you a few examples. So I love ethnic food and I love eating authentic ethnic food the way those people do. I have a recommendation for anyone who's a food. You have to watch the film City of Gold. City of Gold profiles Jonathan Gold, who is uh, the considered maybe the best food critic in the country. And he profiles a bunch of ethnic neighborhoods in LA, one of which is the Oaxacan region of Mexico. And there's a restaurant called Gualaguetza. And now I'm obsessed with that restaurant and I go as much as I can. When you go in there, it's 80% Mexicans, 20% like non-Mexicans, gringos, I guess. And uh, that's the sign of a great restaurant. 
There's a region in Los Angeles called Sawtelle, S-A-W-T-E-L-L-E. And it's like Little Tokyo. It's a neighborhood of Japanese restaurants. They have authentic uh, ramen houses. I lived in Japan for a while. They have authentic ramen houses. They have sushi, how it's done in Japan, not how it's done in the U.S. You have something called okonomiyaki, which is like a mixture between a crepe and a pancake, but Japanese style. Uh, they have Japanese barbecue. So I love going to these authentic foods from regions you don't get. I love Jewish delis as a you know Jewish kid uh, who grew up going to delis. So there's a bunch of them here in LA, although they're somewhat of a dying breed. And another last thing I would say to you is we have wonderful Korean food in LA. So I love going to K-Town and having nice Korean meal. Very good. Well, this is a, a almost perfect segue to the next question. Uh, just kidding. It has nothing to do with food. Okay. Uh, let's talk about business. Okay. Uh, one of, as a, a successful VC angel, been in the industry for a while, selling two companies to uh, two startups to large organizations. You have a ton of experience with this, but one of the hardest things to do in business is to achieve your first 100 customers. What would you recommend to the person listening today that may be starting up their business or maybe um, in a blind spot in sales for their current business? Um, and how would you uh, recommend for them to accomplish to obtain their first 100 customers? Uh, my starting point is really easy. Get out of the office. <laughs> you know, way too many people are insular and especially in the tech world, you know, so many people, they like to sit in front of their computer, they rely upon their social media feed, uh, they might be a programmer or designer, they create a web page, they try and drive traffic, but the reality is you need to get out there. So I want to give you uh, two ideas. One is even on business ideation in the first place, like what is a good idea? There's a metaphor I created, I call it 50 coffee meetings, and I blog about it on my blog. My blog's called Both Sides of the Table, if anyone's interested, and you can Google it there. But I call it 50 coffee meetings, and it's a metaphor for life, which is, what if you could have just one coffee meeting a week with somebody outside of your normal social circle that does something different than what you do, and what if during that coffee meeting, you paid, you brought coffee, maybe you even go to someone's office, maybe you only take 30 minutes of their time, but you go there to be curious, not to talk, not to control the conversation, but you go and ask six great questions about things that you wanna know. So if you wanna know about online marketing, or you wanna know about PR, or you wanna know how M&A works, or you wanna know if your product idea is a good idea, and you go and you listen. The important thing about my metaphor is uh, a concept I call triangulation. Triangulation comes from sailing. You look at the two, two different points uh, to try and figure out the distance uh, and the direction that you need to move. And so for me, if you have a topic you're interested, any problem you want to solve, then you check with five different sources on that. And then you get lots of outside ideas. And I always tell people, mix it in the pot. Like, don't rely on any one person's idea. But over time, you start to hear themes and patterns. And in the end, you have to trust your own judgment about what to do. So for me, it's a commitment to both relationship building, to listening, to learning, and to getting input. 
And very few people do it, and the people who do it are very successful. Number two is outside of the metaphor of generally be networking, generally be curious, generally try to get input and triangulate, uh, is go talk to customers. Too many people want to launch their product. We, let's say you have a document management system and you imagine how customers upload their documents, how they move them through a workflow, how they get them approved. You don't really know how customers work every day unless you go to their office and sit with them and ask them what their problems are and ask them how your product could make things better for them. And, you know, Steve, uh, Steve Blank has a great book. Uh, his original book, I think, was called Four Steps to Epiphany, and he's written several books. Maybe he's got better ones now. But he was a big advocate of this. He called it customer discovery. Get out, spend time with your customers. So the lean startup movement, which many of your listeners may have heard of, came from Eric Reese, but Eric Reese took it from Steve Blank. And the whole idea was that Silicon Valley was obsessed with sitting in front of their computers and hacking and had very little real experience of getting out and, and seeing how customers live their lives and designing products around customer needs. So uh, long answer to a short question. Uh, and it's a great answer at that. So thank you. The other side of the table when it comes to sales is the other side of the table when it comes to sales is also the aspect of management. You've worked with and you've uh, advised, I'm sure, several companies. Is there any particular trend or thing that you see from a great leader in a startup that you would recommend to the people listening or to a startup that's starting out or blind in business, et cetera? Regarding sales? Or uh, regarding management, sorry. Okay. Uh, regarding management. Well, I'll give you a few. Um, when you build your team, uh, I, I like to talk in metaphors because I think it helps people remember stories. Uh, you know, the metaphor that I had heard was that short people hire short people and tall people hire tall people. And what it stood for was we all tend to hire people who are a bit like us because those are the people we know. We know how they think and, you know, we pull in our friends. But the biggest mistake I made at my first start was hiring a bunch of people like me because it turned out that to sales to do product to do marketing to do customer support uh, to do implementation took a whole variety of skill sets and interests and backgrounds and I pulled in a bunch of people like me because that's what I knew I knew like everybody was smart and cerebral and you know, consultative, and we all wanted like a meritocracy, and we all wanted everybody to be equal and to have no hierarchy, because we all came from that background. I worked for years as a software developer, but as at a consulting firm, it's now called Accenture. We were called Anderson Consulting back then. And I realized that like they, they were the wrong, like having 20 of us made no sense at all. So force yourself to hire people that are different. For example, if you're introverted and you don't love taking your 50 coffee meetings and you sit in front of your computer, I can make you 20% better, but I can't make you extroverted. Maybe the person you partner with should be extroverted. If you're more salesperson and you go out and you love pitching and being in front of clients, 
Maybe you need a more cerebral type who's doing the quant work and the spreadsheets and the analysis. Um, you know, if you are a really good opener, but you know that there's a limitation in yourself that you're not a good, as good at closing, you know, pair yourself with a closer. So I use this metaphor even for myself, which is that I'm a, I'm a shaper. I'm a shaper, not a completer finisher. And I have a self-awareness about myself, which comes from the fact that I have ADD. I've had it since childhood, and I don't think it's uh, some great uh, misgiving to have ADD. I, it's somewhat mild. But one of the consequences is doing a lot of things but not finishing anything. So I take everything to 80%. So for the vast part of my career, I've had completer finishers. People who are not as creative and inspirational starting things, but are almost OCD about finishing them. And so my long-term partner is a guy named Stuart Lander. He was the COO at my first company. He was a former lawyer. He's obsessed with finishing, with all the teeth being crossed and I's being dotted. Um, and then I brought him on as a partner at my current fund, Upfront Ventures, and he's the chief operating partner. He's the guy who makes sure our legal docs are complete and our HR processes are efficient. And we build our own software tools. So he oversees the creation of process and tools and systems to make us better at what we do. And even my metaphor holds for life as, as a completer finisher. So on our personal household, you know, uh, we have that dynamic. So I'm not saying I'm like all of your listeners, but figure out who you are, figure out what you're good at and surround yourself, not with five more of you, but people who are different. Mm, very well said. The, the next segment I like to call is explain that grant. And you are one of the, uh, indiv type of individuals that is constantly on social media, providing value. You started it a couple years ago with your snap storms on Snapchat, but I went through the, the internet, the interwebs, and I found some pictures of you that I'd like to show off. I didn't tell you this off air, uh, but I will just have a couple questions about what these pictures mean to you. So um, first question is about the story of how we met. So it's a picture of you uh, cheering for the Eagles. The Eagles won the, the Super Bowl. Um, and I threw a tweet out to you and I said, hey, if the Eagles win, would you jump on my podcast? The first time I asked, they lost. The second time I asked, you were gracious enough to honor still, which thank you so much for that. Um, and then they won. So the Super Bowl champ. So my question revolves around this one right here. This is a bunch of pictures. Uh, this is a picture of a whole bunch of cheesesteaks. You, you were born in Philadelphia. What is the one, what is your favorite cheesesteak spot that you go to and you take your kids to every single time you come back to the city? Listen, I'll, if any of your listeners are in Philly, I'm sure I'll piss off half of them, but I go to Pat's <laughs> and it's religious. And every time we go to Pat's and I take my kids once a year to the link. So every year we go to at least one game, sometimes two. And uh, we always go to Pat's and then they look across at Gino's and they always say, well, why don't we try Geno's? I'm like, because we're a Pat's family. <laughs> um, you know, when I haven't been with my kids, I've explored out and gone to gyms, which is quite good. But I like a good cheesesteak. So I bet 
with a friend of mine, Jeremy Levine, who's a longtime Patriots fan, and he was the founder of a portfolio company of ours called Draft, which was sold last year. And uh, I actually took a sucker's bet, which is I told him I would send him lobster to his entire office if the Patriots won. And in return, he had to send cheesesteaks and tasty cakes. Because <laughs> I grew up also eating tasty cakes. And you can't get tasty cakes on the West Coast. Uh, and I didn't even uh, ask for any points. I took an even bet. Nice. Good for you, man. The, the next question is about this, this picture right here. Beautiful view of Los Angeles. Yes. Uh, and also with your, with your logo, um, Upfront Ventures. You've talked to a lot of companies. You advise a lot of companies. Where do you see the current state of entrepreneurship in startups? Um, what is the current state and where do you think it's going? the current state of startups. So let me, I'm gonna take a diversion since you showed that picture and talk a little bit about the importance of brand and logo and good graphic design. So um, our firm was called GRP before and a lot of people don't know that. And it stood for Global Retail Partners. Well, the fact is we're not global. And we don't focus on retail. So I guess it's truth in advertising to say we're partners. But it didn't seem like a compelling brand to me. And to be fair to my partner who created it back in the 90s, um, they emerged from being retail investors. So they invested in some small companies you might have heard of called Starbucks, where they took 8% ownership. Uh, Costco, they took about 20% ownership. Uh, Dick's Sporting Goods, Office Depot, PetSmart, Ulta Beauty and Cosmetics, Jamba Juice, P.F. Chang's. They had quite a good run. So the idea in 96 was let's set up a fund that does online commerce. And everything, which is now called e-commerce, but all the supporting infrastructure, shopping cart, payment systems, security systems, you know, traffic drivers, and so that was the idea for the firm. But by the time that I arrived in 2007 and I took over as managing partner in 2011, it just wasn't relevant anymore. So I wanted to choose a name that was memorable. Upfront, we fund things early in the cycle. And what you see is what you get. Like we're very transparent. That's why I blog. That's why I'm on social media. Some people think, oh, I'd never want to work with that guy or that firm. That's fine. Uh, can't, you can't please everybody, but if you're authentic as a business person, then I think people can self-select to work with you. And we wanted a graphic design also that was memorable. We spent good money making sure that we thought, you know, built a design that we thought would be recognizable because that's a, a helpful shorthand when you're picking who you want to do business with. So. Um, I spend a lot of time with companies talking about branding and marketing. If you look on both sides of the table today, uh, I have my latest post is about um, how to build an e-commerce brand online and the importance of quality and product and positioning and the classic marketing stuff. But we think a lot about it and a lot of startups do not. So the current state of startups, to answer your actual question rather than the question I wanted to answer, was, uh, you know, I think there's a whole lot of startups creating fairly un 
differentiated products that can grow their first million dollars of revenue because all any big market, you should be able to capture a decent corner of the market. But if you want to build something big and something scalable, you have to build something that's truly different than what exists in the market and truly innovative. Mm, very good. You have, you mentioned your, your blog, which is both sides of the table. Um, but you've also been able to, um, grow successfully multiple organizations, um, from the, from your first business, uh, to your second, which is Coral of the two businesses that you've sold was, was there any common trends that you saw in the process of selling the company? And was there anything different from the first company to the second that you can kind of speak to? Yes. Well, uh, I like to say that I made every possible mistake at my first company. And, and uh, uh, there's a saying that good judgment comes from experience, but experience comes from bad judgment. Good judgment comes from experience, but experience comes from bad judgment. You know, there's only so much you can teach. You know, it's like your children. You have kids and you want to tell them, you know, when I was in college, I probably drank a little bit too much. You might want to hit the books. Or, you know, I had this girl in high school and I thought, you know, she was the one forever. But in reality, many times it's not. So don't let your heart get crushed if she breaks up with you or whatever life lessons you want to give to people, there's a certain amount of life you just need to experience. And I like to say that because business is the same. So the best way to become adept at business is not just to read blogs or business books, but you got to do it and you got to be open to learning the lessons. So um, in my first company, I raised too much money from the start at too high evaluation because I was good at fundraising. I therefore hired people too quickly. And the mistake that I made was I overspecced my product. I built in way too many features and functions. And because I raised a lot of capital at a high price with a complex product with too many people in my company, I had to hit like sales metrics that were um, insane. So I had to do anything to win business. So what I did is I went up market and I started selling million dollar contracts out of the out of the gate. And so we ended up serving some very large clients. We served the London Underground. I was based in London, the London Underground. We served the largest construction firm in the UK. It was called Balfour Beattie. We served the largest water company in the UK, Thames Water. We served the largest German infrastructure companies. Uh, and we had like a collaboration document management software for software for large industrial projects. And I did all, all that, but I became able to lower cost solutions that were good enough. And once I built all that infrastructure and had to keep feeding the beast and growing, um, there was no way for me to change my business model. So I sold that company. It was a decent outcome. We had a big French publicly traded company that wanted to own a kind of continuing secure revenue stream. On my second company, I made almost no mistakes other than selling too early. But uh, we built what today is Dropbox. 
you know, or box.net, you know, box.net or box, I guess they call them. Box is probably a closer analog, but we built it before they did. Mm -hmm. uh, and the reason you haven't heard of it is because we sold it before they did and they mm -hmm. stuck around and, and capture big markets. But our, our philosophy was that there was no great document repository for the internet. So in 2005, we started building that and that's what Coral became. And we had many early customers uh, from Microsoft to DuPont to Kaiser Permanente, but our largest customer was salesforce.com. Mm -hmm. And so they offered out of the gate to buy us. So whereas my first company, my A round was $16.5 million. At Coral, my A round was 500,000. Mm. At my first company, I wanna say I went from zero to about 90 employees in less than a year mm. because I had $16.5 million. In my second company, I had six engineers, a product manager, and me. And anything that wasn't product and engineering, I did from bank accounts to real estate to customer support to sales, to price negotiation, to budgeting, because I didn't want the luxury of having, you know, a big staff that I had to feed until I was sure that our company would work. Um, we sold early, and I don't have any deep regrets. It was a good price, and we all, everyone in my company made life-changing money, which was great, and I feel it's really uh, rewarding to know that you change people's lives. Um, Salesforce is a great company. They bought us. Uh, you know, Mark Benioff at the time told me that over the next 10 years, he was going to build this enormous company and that I should stick around for it. He was right. <laughs> you, know, uh, we, you know, we were acquired uh, towards the end of 06 is when the deal was negotiated at close in March of 07. Uh, I couldn't have imagined how successful he would have become. Um, he's really a genius leader. Um, and some of my employees are still there 10 years, almost 11 years later. Wow, they're cool. uh, still at the company. That's very cool. Um, my final question uh, on the podcast revolves around the inspiration behind a pic this picture right here. Yeah. Uh, which is a picture of your son wearing a meerkat t-shirt and I'm sure that he is amped about startups. I don't really know uh, much about him, but yeah. I know, I'm sure your, your two sons, two sons, right? Just two, yeah, two sons, yeah. um, are both involved in the startup community and maybe one day they want to pursue the livelihood and, and crazy dream of an entrepreneur like you did. Um, to to your sons and to the to the people that are thinking about starting a business today, what are three pieces of advice that you would give to a fellow young entrepreneur? Okay, and I'm, I promise I'll answer that question, and I will answer it completely. I just want a small segue about about children and young people in general, whether your kids or your cousins or or people in college that you talk to, there's such an importance of modeling, modeling good behavior. And my wife and I talk about it all the time. I grew up without a lot of money, without a lot of resources. And, you know, we were taught to work hard. My mom was an entrepreneur. My mom was also a philanthropist. We didn't have tons of money, but she was, you know, president of a philanthropy, the UJA. Um, and they were active in their civic duties. And so, my, I have 
three siblings, the four of us, you know, we kind of model the behavior that we learn from our parents. So my kids are growing up in a world where they do have resources and we try to make them feel like they, like they don't in a way. Um, so, you know, I, they regularly are in the car with me and we'll debate deals, mm-hmm. you know, that, that I've done that I'm working on. Uh, they, I mean, I love the show shark tank. It, there's somewhat of an artificial nature to it, but you know, my kids will ask me things like, well, why did that guy take a licensing deal when he could have had equity or, you know, he, they, they're thinking about the topic. They're interested in the topic of the products and why they'll work and why they won't work. My son proudly wore his ring shirt to school this week. Uh, I don't know if you saw, but Amazon bought them for $1.1 billion. We co-led the seed round on that company. We did the A round, the B round, the C round, the D round, and the E round. Uh, we had invested about $30 million in the company. And Jamie is a true inspiration, the founder of Ring, uh, and the classic quintessential entrepreneur. Uh, so anyway, I try to model good behavior, both in terms of how to treat people, how to think about people who have less than you, uh, treating people with respect, and also giving back. But to answer your question, uh, number one, I like to tell, I speak a lot on college campus. So I'll tell you what I tell them. Number one is learn sales. There's nothing you're going to do in your life that doesn't involve sales. But if you don't do it in your 20s and you don't do it in your 30s, you're certainly not going to start in your 40s. And so even if it's uh, if you work in product or engineering or marketing or whatever you do in a company, find a way to get involved with sales. Take sales calls a day a week or go on sales visits or Work in business development where you've got to close deals because that skill set matters no matter what you do. And I always tell people fundraising, which is an important part of a run, uh, running a business, is a sale. What you're selling is piece of equity in your company and your vision in exchange for cash. But it's still a sale and everything is a sale and sales is not a bad word. You know, I always say to people, If you think sales is a bad word, it means you don't have confidence in your product. If you believe that your product's going to make somebody's life better, then you're actually helping them by selling to them. And the worst kind of salespeople are transactional. They just want to get your money and move on. So let's call it the quintessential used car salesman or mattress salesman. But the best salespeople actually care about you and they build a relationship with you and you buy from them for the next 20 or 30 years. So learn how to sell, whether it's on the phone or in person, and learn the process, the methodology. Get comfortable with no. I think a lot of people can't sell because they can't understand no. And no doesn't mean you're terrible. No means they just don't have a need to buy what you're selling right now. Number two is learn to program. So let's say now that you're a salesperson or marketing or product or design or you're a business leader, take programming courses. I'm not telling you you need to be the world's best programmer. Most people are not. Uh, But being a programmer part-time gives you a sense of what technology can and cannot do and an appreciation for what can and cannot be built. And I think it gives you a huge competitive advantage 
one of my biggest competitive advantages as a venture capitalist and as an entrepreneur is that I was a programmer from the time I was 14 in an era where there weren't a lot of programmers. And my career started building software. So I have a lot more appreciation and imagination for what can and can't happen. And the third thing I'd like to say is write. Learn to write. It's why I blog. Uh, I studied two things undergrad, economics and political science. I had a double degree. And I thought economics was the practical thing and poli-sci was my personal interest in politics. And it turned out opposite, which is, yeah, economics is useful to understand, like, you know, how interest rates affect bond prices or whatever. But uh, poli-sci taught me critical thinking. It taught me how to read nine books in six weeks. And of course, you can't really do that unless you're a speed reader to pick out the critical information, to form a thesis, to form a thesis, and then to support your thesis in writing and to build an argument. And the fundamental, everything I do comes down to that, which is if I have a business problem and I'm trying to decide should I do X, my starting point is taking a bunch of information, decide what I think I know, support it with logic, and then go out and get data or opinions to prove or disprove my thesis. And that forms the basis of everything I do in business. So to, to tie a little bow around that concept, you know, a friend of mine got into super, super smart guy, got into a, a joint um, law degree, business degree at Stanford, um, something I couldn't have gotten into. He's uh, a notch above me. Um, and he's much younger and he started both. And then he realized that he didn't want to spend, I think it was four years to get through both. And he asked, should he drop out of business school? Sorry, should he drop out of law school and focus on his business degree? And I told him the opposite. Drop out of business school. He wants to be an entrepreneur. You can learn by doing, but law school will teach you critical thinking and reasoning, argumentation and writing, and those will help you a lot more in life. Mm -hmm. Very awesome. Well, Mark, thank you so much for your time. And it was greatly appreciated that you successfully complete the podcast. So kudos and thank you. Uh, <laughs> the next 30 seconds is all yours to just tell everybody how they can follow you, be a part of your journey, uh, and learn more about your organization. Sure. Um, well, on Twitter, I'm at msuster, M-S-U-S-T-E-R, and I am what you think I am. Like, if you see me on Twitter, and if you are uh, pro-NRA and believe that there should be no controls in guns, uh, you're not going to enjoy following me because <laughs> I call it how I see it. Um, and uh, But I do try to put links to my articles or other people's articles. I do respond to people, as you know on Twitter. I try to engage with the audience, especially people who have something interesting to say. I can't always engage or I wouldn't get my job done, but I try my best to. Um, you can also follow me on Facebook. I write a little bit longer things on Facebook. I'm just Mark Suster on Facebook. Uh, sometimes I put personal, more personal stuff up there because there's fewer trolls. Uh, but I do post articles and I, people comment on stuff in Facebook and I comment back. I have a blog, it's called Both Sides.
sides of the table um, and I as frequently as I can. And on Snapchat, I'm at msuster. And sometimes I'll do, you know, food and concerts and the usual Snapchat life. But um, I go through long periods of trying to do video advice on Snapchat. And I've been promising people I would get back to that. And uh, I'm, in fact, getting back to it next week. I've got um, a piece coming out on cryptocurrencies and blockchain and trying to explain to people what's really going on in that ecosystem. So that's how you can follow me. Well, good stuff. I, I, I can say the world needs more snap storms from you. Um, <laughs> but to those that are still watching and listening, thank you guys for always liking, commenting, and subscribing. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on YouTube and head over to theblindentrepreneur.com for more interviews. Go out there and execute your vision, everybody. Have a good rest of your day.